I have to say, it's always fascinating to me when I see how, and we know that the scripture is timeless. When I see how relevant the scripture is to to our lives today, we're looking at a passage of scripture that is absolutely relevant. And when we look around and we see the world around us and the things that are unfolding, there is direct application to what's going on in our world. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, uh, I've, I've flown on an airplane a lot over the years. And when the, when the flight attendant gets up and, and she starts doing the, you know, the, the, you're getting ready to take off. She's got the belt and, and the, the flotation device and, you know, talks about your seat cushion <laughs> being used as a flotation device in the event of a water landing, which <clears throat> seems odd, but that's what they got to say. At any rate, I've flown enough to where I just don't pay a lot of attention to it. <laughs> and, you know, she starts her spiel and I'm, you know, playing with my phone or doing whatever. And yet, I will guarantee you that if there is an emergency in the sky, <laughs> I'm going to wish I had paid really close attention to that because I want to know where the exits are. I want to know how to get a hold of my life. I want to know what's going on. God's word is like that. Sometimes there are things that exist and we just kind of bump along and we go through our lives and, and, and there are things that we can understand intellectually, but we don't really see them playing out or, or fully apply them in our lives. And, and, and that's just us. I mean, I'm not you know, picking on anybody. That's me. I know that if it's me, it's probably you. Uh, and yet we do well to dust off the instructions to pay attention to the things that are going on around us. Because in our lives, we have gone from just cruising along, you know, getting ready to take off and you know, playing with our stuff or whatever, to now we look around us and we look at the world around us and we see things are getting pretty weird. Things are getting actually desperate in some ways. The world is coming unraveled day by day. And we want to understand What's going on? As I prepared for this, uh, I, I study a whole variety of different people, different commentaries and, and teachers and all. And uh, I was kind of astounded that at the timelessness of the message, that I was reading things that were done decades ago, sometimes the last century before last, and the relevance of, of what we see today, it, it's just amazing. As we're here in Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, uh, I have two words for you by way of exhortation. Buckle up. This is a passage. Uh, You'll see why as we go. Verse 16, we're going to start in verse 18, but just to catch the flow, the context. Remember, we looked at verses 16 and 17 as we wrapped up last week. And we looked at, this is the essence of the message of the book of Romans. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We looked at that. We looked at how the gospel went, Jesus went to the Jews. They rejected. So God offered the the gospel, the good news to the Gentiles, the Greeks. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we looked at the word just. It's the same as the word. It's where we get the word justified. 
which is connected to the word righteousness. So we have, we are the just that is being, that are being referred to here in verse 17. And in the core of the gospel, he's saying, I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed of this. It's the power of God. As we look at this and we go into verse 18, as I mentioned, this is a potent section of scripture. Verse 18, first five words, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This passage is about the wrath of God. But it's equally about the rebellious heart, the rebellious nature of man. And we'll see as this passage unfolds, as we unpack this, that there is man's action, God's reaction. Man's action, God's response. So as we look at the wrath of God, what is the wrath? What is this wrath of God? I mean, you hear Southern preachers trying to scare people into the kingdom. I don't think that's real effective. And we'll talk about that. He's talking about fire and brimstone and all. There is a place for that. Jesus, when he talked about fire and brimstone, talking about Gehenna, when he talked about hell, he wasn't talking about the dump. I mean, that was literally the valley of Gehenna outside of Jerusalem, just off the city of David, a a valley where they dumped all of the the refuse and put the bodies there and all that. And they sprinkled them with sulfur and, and, and burned the trash there. But when Jesus talked about that, he wasn't talking about the dump. He was talking about a place. And it was a place for people who had been on the wrong side of God's wrath. So it's about the wrath of God. It's equally about man's rebellion. Now, by definition, God's wrath in the scripture, it's defined as his holy and just indignation against sin. Now, it's, it's often translated as anger, indignation, vexation, irritation, different words that are used as a reference to the wrath of God. Both humans and God express wrath. However, <laughs> there's a huge difference between the wrath of God and the wrath of man. Uh, very often when I hear people talk about, I have a righteous indignation. <laughs> very often that is something that I have an ass to grind <laughs> and I'm trying to spiritualize it. So be careful about that. But in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, James writes, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there's a difference between me being angry about something and God being angry about something. God's anger is a function of his holiness. It's a function of who he is. Um... God's wrath is holy. It's always justified. The wrath of man is rarely, if ever, and I don't believe we really ever have a holy anger, but it's seldom justified. Be careful. God's wrath is also unpopular in the world. People don't want to talk about the wrath of God. It makes them uncomfortable. It's it's disconcerting. It, it, we're, we're labeled as being intolerant by talking about God's anger, but it's necessary part of who God is. And it's critical in it, that we understand the person of God as well as the gospel, the good news of his son. Because you guys have heard me say, you can't really grasp how good the good news is until you get how bad the bad news is. This is the bad news. This is the section of scripture that lays it out. 
So it's the good news of his son contrasted with the bad news of a man and the, the, the results of that, the effects of that. So as we go along here, I want to, now wrath is, it's a major theme. It's a major understanding. We have to understand God's anger. We have to understand perfect divine anger in order to fully comprehend the person of God, in order to fully comprehend the importance of the gospel. It's not just a minor theme. It's a major aspect of who he is. He is perfect love and perfect anger at the same time. We'll look at that. But I want to talk about five things about God's wrath. We need to have a good understanding about the wrath of God, a biblically-based understanding, (laughs) over my own words, of the wrath of God in order to fully understand this passage. So before we get too far into this, I want to, I want to talk about five things. The first is God's wrath is just. He's holy. You got to understand that God is holy. That means he is moral perfection as relates to infinity. And guess what? By comparison, you're not. <laughs> Neither am I. And so we got to understand that he is just. He is the just one. He has to judge sin. The wrath of God is his divine response to human sin and disobedience. God's wrath against sin and disobedience is perfectly justified because his plan for mankind is holy and perfect in the same way that he is holy and perfect. You've got to understand that. We're talking about infinite terms, but terms that we can, we can grasp. Another thing about that is if, if, if God were to somehow, air quotes, look the other way, like we do sometimes with other people's sin or other people offend or whatever, I mean, there's a difference between him looking the other way, the other way and him choosing not to remember sin. I could get off into that and rabbit trail. We wouldn't get any further. But he would not be God if he just excused away sin. Because if you understand sin in its broadest definition, anything short of the absolute divine perfection of who God is, is sin. That's why it's so important that we have an understanding that it has to be on the basis of God's grace. It it has to be. There is no way that we could do enough good stuff. There's no way that we could be righteous enough. There's no way that we could earn our way into heaven because of the fact that he is holy. And because of the fact that wrath is the result of the ungodliness of men. And all of us fall into this category. Paul's intention in this whole section is to illustrate that nobody gets off. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 16 here in chapter 1, Paul says, the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. He's talking about faith. For the Jew first and also the Greek. And then contrast that or hold that up against what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 36 says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. Why? Because the wrath of God abides on him, rests on him. So it becomes critically important that we understand that God's wrath is just 
And where we settle out individually is on which side of his wrath. Has his wrath been satisfied? Because when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. From the cross, he was wearing your sin. He was wearing my sin. We don't understand it, but he was absorbing the wrath of God for us. It's so important that we understand which side of the cross we stand on. Because if you're standing on the wrong side, the things we're going to look at are the result. The second thing we look at is God's wrath is to be feared. The wrath of God is a fearful and terrifying thing. Now, again, if you are a Christian this morning, either here or or watching online, you don't have to fear his wrath. The wrath of God has passed over you. That's why the Passover was so important as an illustration, even back in Moses's day, that, that because of the sacrifice, because of the blood of the lamb that rests on our lives, God's wrath doesn't. His wrath passes over us. But in Hebrews chapter 10, that passage there, if you remember, those of you that were with us, when we studied the book of Hebrews, uh, we looked at what it is, what, what the apostate looks like. And that's somebody, that's not somebody that's backslidden. That's not somebody that, uh, is, is struggling with sin. That particular passage, I firmly believe, is about somebody that said, I gave my life to Christ and now I want it back. About somebody who's walked away and has an active posture of walking away. He says this, he says, for if we sin willfully, After having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. God's wrath must be feared. And fiery indignation, which will devour the adversary. He goes on in verse 31 of the same chapter, chapter 10 in Hebrews, by saying it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're on the wrong side of the cross. The third thing we look at about God's wrath is that it's consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, you know, you hear people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he's this big old ogre that's going around lapping people and, you know, and he's just so mean and all. No, no, no. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there's a ton of passages that I could bring out. There are a lot of passages that talk about the wrath of God. But I picked just one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament so that we can kind of have a working understanding because we've got a lot of ground to cover of the consistency that we see in the person of God in both, in both the Old and the New Testaments. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Uh, It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Now apply this, again, apply this to our world today. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Let's come against the people of God. Let's get rid of them. Verse four of Psalm two, he says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. And it's not a laugh because it's funny. It's a laugh of derision. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And then prophetically, he goes on to say, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, speaking prophetically of the Christ who would come. So again, for a Christian, fear not. For people that are out there, 
and you haven't given your life to Christ, there is a place for healthy fear. And God's wrath is consistent with the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament, when we get to Romans chapter 2, I'll just read a couple of verses from that. In 2, 5 through 8, uh, the Apostle Paul says it, but in accordance with your, the, your hardness and your impenitent heart, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath. Did you know that for the unregenerate man, what he says here is that you not only have the wrath of God resting on your life, like we read that John the Baptist said there in John chapter 3, but that wrath actually increases to your account if you don't belong to Christ. Treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuing and doing good seek honor and glory and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. The fourth thing we see here about the wrath of God is that his wrath is his love in action against sin. Now that sounds contradictory. You're talking about God's perfect anger and God's perfect love. And that, and you're mixing them, Pastor John. How does that make sense? The idea that his wrath and his love are intertwined. You guys know what cognitive dissonance is? It's where you have one thing going on here and one thing going on here. And you're going, I don't understand how both of those could be so. That's called cognitive, cognitive dissonance. And what it means is that you're, you're not able to sort it out. Well, God's word does some pretty good sorting for us. And in principle, in general, uh, you have to understand that a holy God sees that sin perverts the creation that he loves. As our creator who loves truth, justice, and peace, he mercifully intervenes to prevent this corruption from wiping out all of humanity. It's in his love. He sent Jonah to the Ninevites to give them time to repent. Jonah didn't even want to go. And I think he secretly wished that they wouldn't repent, just wipe them out. He was upset when they did. But he sent Jonah to the Ninevites. That, that, those are the people in Assyria, all right? That was the, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and they were bad dudes. I mean, the, I, I've read articles. I mean, I read one about a, a judge that was unjust. And the Ninevites, their punishment for this unjust judge was they stripped his skin off of him while he was alive. I mean, they were ruthless and yet God said, I don't want to judge them. Jonah, go tell them to repent. Because if they don't, in 40 days, you're going to die. And they did. I think it's remarkable. In Hosea chapter 2, this is interesting. God, Hosea, Hosea is, I mean, God has sent Hosea out after his unfaithful wife. We'll look at that uh, a little more here in a minute. But, but he's, he's saying, look, you're, this whole story of Hosea is, is Hosea going out to rescue his unfaithful wife after she had been unfaithful to him. It's a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God and God saying, I don't want to judge. I want to rescue you. I want to pull you back in. I want a relationship with you. But in Hosea 2.13, God is saying, I will punish her. I'll accomplish my wrath. I'll pour out my wrath and chastise Israel. It was a picture not of Hosea and his wife as much as it was God and his people, Israel. And that's what the story of Hosea represents. And so God is saying, I'm going to punish her. I am going to, I am going to rein her in. In the very next verse, 
<laughs> Hosea 2.14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will draw her in. And he goes on to say, I will pour out blessings on her. Both sides. He's saying, I'm going to accomplish my wrath because I want to rein her in. I want to do something with this obstinate people because I love them. I'm going to pour out my wrath. And so you see how those work together. He wasn't satisfied with a fear-based relationship that they would have. In verse 16 of the same chapter, it says, In that day you'll call me my husband and no longer call me my master. This is after he had chastised Israel, taken them away to captivity. They came back into the land. He says, I want you to call me not my master. I don't want my relationship with you to be fear-based because you know that I have the capacity for wrath. I want you to call me my husband. Same thing that God does with the church. He wanted a relationship where they thought of him primarily as a husband, not as a cruel master. That God is a God of wrath. Don't let that lead you to conclude that it's because he enjoys being cruel. Very often his wrath is a function of his love. Hard to grasp at times. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 15, he says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. The fifth thing we see about the wrath of God is that it is satisfied in Christ alone. Alone. Singular. Only those who by faith have been covered by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross of Calvary can be assured that God's wrath will never fall on us. Prior to giving my life, giving my heart to Christ, asking him to forgive me for my sins, Cleanse me, trusting in the work of the cross. And that's the gospel, folks. If you haven't had that transaction, pay attention. Because he says in Ephesians chapter 2 that prior to coming to Christ, prior to giving him our lives, that we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, he says, but God, I love those two words, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loves us. You see how there's the wrath of God and then the love of God. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. So as we understand more about the wrath of God and a proper view of his wrath, it's important to understand what God's word now has to say about his wrath. And I want to talk about five manifestations of God's wrath that we see in the scripture. And then we'll we'll bring it home to what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture. The first is that we see in God's word, we see eternal wrath. This is the punishment that God brings upon unbelieving sinners forever in hell. Hell exists. It's real. And if you have not transacted at the cross, that's where you go. When we look and we see in the book of Revelation that the books are opened and people's names are either written or not written in the Lamb's book of life, we see that there is what's called the great white throne of judgment, eternal wrath. That's why Jesus said in the gospels over and over again, he said, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. It's not that you just simply cease to exist, but God's eternal wrath is poured out. The second kind of wrath we see revealed in God's word is what could be called eschatological wrath. This is when you look in the book of Revelation and you see that 
what happens is God begins now to cleanse the earth of sin. And he pours out his wrath. The bowls of judgment, the, the trumpet judgments, the things that we see there, those are eschatological. Eschatology is the study of the last times. So eschatological wrath is the wrath that's poured out at the end of this age. And folks, we're close. We're close. Look at what's happened in our, our world in just the last year. Look at what's happened in our culture in just the last year. Look at what's happened in our governments, not just the U.S., but around the world. Look at the persecution that's being mounted against the church of the living God. We're close. The birth pangs are coming. They're ringing through loud and clear. The things that were prophesied in God's word. So there's eschatological wrath. There's also cataclysmic wrath. And I want to be careful with this one because there are cataclysms on the earth. There is pestilence disease. There are earthquakes. There are manifestations, demonstrations, which are a reflection of God's judgment on the earth. You got to be real careful on that one because to start singling them out, uh, it's not a wise thing to do. I remember when the AIDS epidemic broke out and there were people dying (laughs) in the droves. And there were a number of preachers who were going, ah, it's God's judgment on the homosexual. And, and, you know, it may have been and it may not have been. We've got to be careful that we're not filling in those blanks. But we do know that cataclysmic wrath exists. There are times where God demonstrates his judgment. He reflects his judgment through the things that the earth endures. There's also the fourth thing we see here is this consequential wrath. This is you reap what you sow. That which a man sows, he will also reap. If you reap, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap life. This is cause and effect, consequential wrath. It's living a certain way, which produces the wrath of God. We're going to look at that more. The fifth thing here, and it's an interesting one, and it's what we're seeing here in Romans chapter one, is you could call it the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment. It's the wrath of God that happens when God turns his back on, in Paul's case, the empire, the Roman empire. In our case, our nation and the nations of the earth. Folks, we're there. We are there. Don't be deceived. God said in Judges chapter 10, you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. I'm done. Go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Again, in Hosea chapter 4, he said, Ephraim is joined unto idols. Leave them alone. In these instances, God is saying, I'm done with you. We see in God's word where he says in the last days that he will give men and women over to a deluding influence that they might believe what's false. He says, I'm done with you. And you wonder, well, why would God abandon people? That doesn't sound like the God of grace. You got to understand what's motivating him. Because in every instance where God has said, I'm done, in every instance where the wrath of abandonment comes into play, it's because those people abandoned him. And they held on to it actively. It wasn't that they boofed and they went, oh, sorry. Sorry. No, they said, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the exchange. 
that takes place in the human heart. In Acts chapter 14, verse 16, Luke writes, In past generations, God permitted all nations to go their own ways. And throughout history, this has been man's way. Unrestrained, in our case, unrestrained by the gospel of Christ. We go our own way. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of his day whose hearts were so hard towards the truth of God. He says, leave them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. They'll both fall into a ditch. They will both be destroyed. So the question becomes, what does this abandonment that we're looking at here in Romans look like? And simply, it's when God lets go and removes his restraining grace from a society and gives them over to their own collective sinful choices and the results of those choices. We see in this passage, and we're not going to get to it today. We're going to get to it next week. This is part one. Three times it says God gave them over. But we also see why. That's what we're going to look at today. The result of being given over is a moral freefall. Sin leads to more sin and becomes both the cause and the effect. The cause, sin. The effect, more sin. And so it builds on itself. And that's what happens when a culture, when a society goes into a moral free fall. And we're seeing it, folks. We're there. So why would God abandon people? Because those people first abandon him. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Whenever the gospel was presented to the Gentiles, look in Acts chapter 14, look in Acts chapter 17. The gospel was presented in light of creation. Why? He says, God had showed it to them. He says, since the creation of the world here. When we see creationism attacked and replaced with evolution, we see man rejecting the one whose creation it is. Folks, it's been around for a long time now. It's been around for decades. This, the, 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 the notion that everything evolved, spontaneously evolved, that, that nothing times blind chance equals the infinite order that we see in the created universe. When man abandons that, he's abandoning the God whose universe it is. So we're talking about abandonment here. And we're talking about man taking the initiative to abandon God. And God's response is the wrath of abandonment. It's divine cause and effect. They're without excuse because a creation has to have a creator. A design has to have a designer. How foolish it is. The effect, creation, cannot be without a cause. God. And yet that's what evolution puts forth. That's what it postulates. When it talks about his invisible attributes here, it's talking about his moral attributes. We know that man was created in the image of God. That doesn't mean that we're created in the infinite image of God. It doesn't mean that we get the omnis, (laughs) lightning bolts and all of that. What it means is we were created in God's moral image, that we receive his moral attributes. And he is perfect morality. So when it talks about his invisible attributes here, man was created in God's moral image. 
Verse 21, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Progression here. We'll get to that towards the end of the message. So the question becomes then, how did they become futile in their thoughts and have their foolish hearts darkened? How did this come about? We've already seen the answer to it in verse 18, because he starts with addressing what the answer to these things is. And then he goes on and he begins to talk about how that came about. What we see in verse 18, he says, by suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That is an interesting, interesting statement. The word truth here, the Greek word for truth is aletheia. Okay, what it means is what is true, but it also can be rendered what is right. So they suppress the truth. They suppress what is right in unrighteousness. Literally, they suppress what is right for that which is unright. They swap it out. This is not passive rejection. This isn't, oh, I just choose not to believe. This is, I choose to believe and I'm going to adopt this instead. Well, my God would never. How many times have I heard that over the years? And sometimes it's accurate, rarely. But it's usually because somebody has a God of their own making, God in their back pocket. They've swapped it out. Look around, look at our culture, look at our world, look at the political scene, look at what's going on in in, in our, our world, and you're seeing that people have swapped it out. And now they're trying to force their version on us. There's a bill before Congress this week to force their version on us. Not going to happen. Not now. Not ever. It's not passive rejection. It's an intentional exchange. They suppress the truth of creation for evolution. You see, there's the exchange. They suppress the moral image of God in whom we were created for immorality. Look around. This confirms the statement that by their unrighteousness and wicked, these wicked people are constantly attempting to suppress the truth. It's all over. It's broken out. It's in the open. It's the truth that has been and is continually being revealed to them. And they're accordingly suppressing it. And they don't have an excuse. There is no excuse. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, I want to talk about science for a minute. And well, reputable science has done a lot to advance humanity's understanding of the natural world. I mean, I think about the laws of physics, you know, the the likes of Einstein or or the different things that science has produced and, and, and that we're able to enjoy the fruits of. I don't have an issue with that. However, there's an increasingly influential strand in science. It's a strand of thought these days that is referred to as scientism. I call it the religion of scientism. And what scientism is, is the idea that science is the only path to knowledge. That matter is the only fundamental reality. The, the, The natural world is the only fundamental reality. By default, it rejects any notion of faith, any notion of God. Now, you guys have all heard of C.S. Lewis. He, and he was a trained philosopher. He was a professor at Cambridge University, at Oxford University. So the, he, he was an intellectual giant. And he fiercely and extensively critiqued the, the dogma known as scientism. This isn't new, but it's gained a lot of traction 
How many times in the last months have you heard, we're following the science when it's to advance somebody's agenda? Scientism claims that spiritual discourse is bankrupt because reality is only explained by that which can be known by scientific means and can be reduced to purely natural terms. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Throw it out. Religious belief entails commitments to things that cannot in principle be known by scientific means or reduced to purely natural terms. Throw it out. Professing to be wise, they became fools. We call it faith. God calls them fools consumed by sin. By the way, the word fools there is morenos. It's where we get the word moron. Need I say more? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. I remember a superior court judge, <laughs> Judge Abel. Uh, and and, and in, in Oregon, you have circuit court judges, and they're the judges that are right below the Supreme Court. We discovered that earlier this last year. Um, in California, they're called superior court judges and they're the highest judges except for the state Supreme Court in the land. And this guy was the, the superior court judge. He was also the, the, the Mormon church's stake president in the place where I lived. And he was invited to give the baccalaureate for my son's graduation. And a baccalaureate is supposed to be a spiritual orientation towards what's going to happen in your life as you now get out of high school and go forward. And this guy talked for an hour and a half. And oh my gosh, it was painful. He said nothing. I'm serious. In an hour and a half, he said absolutely nothing. Here is the wise and learned man, the guy that has the highest position in a couple of different ways, professing to be wise. They became fools. Verse 23, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. I like that verse. It's just like, ah, birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Yeah, it, it sounds kind of comical. It's because if it wasn't true, it'd be funny. They abandoned God for idols, for religion. By exchanging, he says they changed, they swapped out. They altered the truth of God in his glory for the gods of their own convenience, their own making, according to their own lust. They make God lower. When man invents, reinvents his own version of God, it's always lower than he is because then he can manipulate him. How foolish it is. Verse 23 says they swapped out, they abandoned the glory of the incorruptible God for the corruptible. You see, there's this exchange that's going on. We're going to get to uh, these other verses next week. But in verse 25, it says that they swapped out, they abandoned, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In verse 26, they swapped out, they abandoned, they exchanged their natural function for that which is unnatural, referring to homosexuality. God's response You see what I'm saying? God is abandoning them because they first abandoned him. That's what's happening here. His response, we'll see next week again. In verse 24, God gave them over. In verse 26, God gave them over. In verse 28, God gave them over. It's cause and effect. He didn't just decide. They didn't like them. They decided to swap out the truths 
the precious truths that we devote our lives to for their own version, their own perversion of the truth. As a result, the wrath of God abides on our world because we're there. We're not getting there, folks. We're there. In closing, I want to look at this progression in verses 18 to 23 that we've been looking at here because there is a progression. There are four specific actions by man that result in the wrath of God. The first is revelation. God has revealed ultimate truth. In verse 18, it says that they suppress that truth. In verse 19, he gives the source of that truth because that because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. How has God shown it to even a pagan culture, even an unbelieving culture that has no knowledge of the gospel? He has given us his image, through his image, his moral law that's written in our hearts. We know. I did jail ministry for a while, and and I would routinely ask the inmates, did you know, raise your hand if you didn't know that what landed your rear end in here was wrong. And I never, and of course, they're always wrong when they're talking to their attorneys, but they're talking to the preacher. I never had one person raise their hand and say, I didn't know it was wrong. Because we have the moral law of God written in our hearts. God gave man the ability to reason. These two things are so embedded in us that that's why we're told at the end of verse 20 that we are without excuse. Now add the external revelation of scripture and we're truly without excuse. So we see revelation, rejecting God's revelation of himself. The second thing flowing from that is rejection. In verse 21, we read, And although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Though God has revealed himself to man, and he finds God in his own ability to reason, reason, he rejects. Though God has revealed himself to man through the moral law that is written on man's heart and in his conscience, he rejects. A lot of rejecting going on out there, guys. A lot of rejecting. Man suppresses the truth beneath his own iniquities because, as we're told in the Gospel of John, he loves darkness more than he loves light. By default, The result of this is that man is mired in ever-worsening sin, thinking that he can live his life and live by his own terms without any consequence, with impunity. And God is telling us here, that's not so. Storing up wrath. Divine wrath and eternal judgment are the result of this. The third thing we look at is rationalization. Verse 22, professing to be wise. They became fools. They rationalized. The darkness in their own souls is so profoundly blinding. They cannot even access their own true condition. Do you stand with your mouth hanging open sometimes? Do you scratch your head going, how are they acting like that? How are they headed that direction? And there is no consequence here. How have they come to those conclusions? How, how, how? I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's because you're dealing with blindness to such a degree that it builds on itself and it strengthens itself. Why? Because they've been given over. That's why. Their darkness is so profound and their blindness is so complete. They cannot see it. 
And spiritual blindness requires me to cooperate. Remember, it's never the devil made me do it. It's the emperor's new clothes. Remember the story about the emperor? Thought he had a really nice snazzy wardrobe and he went out parading around naked. That's what's happening in our world. Very difficult at times to convince people of the truth of the gospel and the love of God. We live in a world filled with self-important people who are driven to be noticed. They're driven to be the expert. They're filling talk show venues and giving one another awards. How is it that Governor Cuomo in New York got an Emmy for his COVID-19 meetings and now he's looking at perhaps being indicted for the scandal and the fraud? It's because of this. We want to be the best and the brightest and the coolest and the most successful. Those are an illusion. What counts at the end of a man or a woman's life is do you know Christ? More so are you known by him. Fourth thing that we look at here in this progression is religion. Men create their own gods to accommodate their own baseless and useless ideas. Have you ever thought about and wondered why is it that terrorism is always tied to religion? It's because of this. It's because of the the mindset that we're talking about. It's man. Religion is man at his lowest, guys. It is not man at his highest. It's not man reaching for God. No, it is man at his lowest, worshiping the gods of his own making. Whether those gods are sex or money or fame or power or a counterfeit spirituality, all of it is satanic in design with the intent the intent to deceive and to destroy. This world's hurtling out of control and people are, they will be lost. This message, again, this message is not for Christians. If you know the Lord this morning, it should cause you, number one, to rejoice that this is not going to happen with you. But my prayer, church, is that we get off our rear ends and we realize that time is short And those people in our family, in our circle, in our sphere of influence that don't know Christ, this is what the result will be. We've got to know that the gospel is real and that Jesus's love is real and that for people to not come into the love of Christ, wrath is all that remains. It's a hard, hard truth, but it's true. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief doesn't come except to steal and kill, and destroy. I've come that they might have life, and they would have it more abundantly. That's the contrast. That's the same contrast that, that, that Paul is drawing here when he's talking about these people that are being given over, because they not only reject, but they actively reject and exchange the truth of God for a lie happening all around us. I am just blown away. And when I look at the relevance of God's word and what we're seeing here in the book of Romans, I've taught this book a number of times before, but I have to tell you, I have never seen it with the clarity and with the purpose and, 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 and with the direct application. I'm not having to teach this in the abstract. I'm not having to teach it in the well, maybe someday. As I mentioned, we're there. And we do well to heed the voice of scripture. We do well to heed the voice of God. We do well. Folks, if you're a Christian, rejoice. 
absolutely rejoice. This should get you in a place where you go, God, I am just so thankful for your grace that you've washed me in the blood of the lamb, that you have redeemed my soul, that you purchased me back from the jaws of hell. And if you're not a Christian, you can take care of that with a very simple transaction. It simply sounds some, a prayer that sounds something like this. God, I have lived my life away from you. I've been in a posture of rejecting you even, perhaps replacing the truth that you bring with a lie. And I'm asking you to forgive me. Cleanse me from the old life. Give me a new life. He will do it. You're sincere about that. The Bible says that if you draw near unto God, he will draw near unto you. It says that he gives grace to the humble. People that are humble enough to see their own condition, but he resists the proud. That's the God that we know. That's the God that we love and that we serve. And this is God's word that is absolutely relevant for the world within which we sit and we're going to go out and interact with when we're finished here this morning. Praise God for his word. Praise God for the eternal relevance. Praise him for the, the, the significant relevance in giving us understanding as to what's going on out there. I'd be lost without him, without his, the guidance that his word brings. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your long suffering with us. Thank you, Lord, that you offered us literally a lifeline. And for those of us that know you, that we've taken that lifeline and you've filled us, refreshed our lives, given us purpose. Lord, it's all your work. And so I pray for each person within the sound of my voice, that as you do your work, that we would respond rightly. That it wouldn't be our intention ever to suppress the truth, but that we could walk in the light as you are in the light. That we would experience true peace, true joy. That we would have real tangible grace, not just having received it for ourselves, but that we could freely give that grace to others the unmerited favor that you wash us with. Thank you for your divinely inspired word. Thank you this morning, Lord, for giving us a moment of clarity in all the craziness that we see out there. Help us to know, Lord, that it's the kindness of God that leads a man or a woman to repentance, not beating them up with these things, but simply coming alongside and showing them a better way, showing them your love. Use us, I pray. Fill us up and use us. We're grateful this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.